God is good. If we were in Africa, you would all say it loud and clear all the time. And all the time? And the best is yet to come. Let's be encouraged today. We could get really heavy. <laughs> uh, one brother gave a comment there that, you know, we shouldn't be consumed by this. And uh, if you know my lifestyle, I'm not consumed by fighting heresy. Paul fought heresy and false teaching vehemently, but he wasn't consumed by it. He was primarily a preacher of the gospel, a church planter, uh, but along the way, when he saw something, he addressed it. And that's what it is. But because we are here a couple days focusing on, on this uh, issue, it sounds like this is all we do, and that's not at all true. How many of you echo what I just said now? So we just get in the right spirit. Uh, we are about the gospel, not against those who are against the gospel or who are those contaminating the gospel. We are for something, not against something. But as we progress in our ministry, we encounter hurdles. We encounter barriers and roadblocks. And we need to deal with these as we go. Uh, as a Lebanese who grew up in the north country, in a, a predominantly Muslim city of Tripoli, I played with Muslims, I ate with Muslims, I slept with Muslims, ran around with Muslims, fought with Muslims, and uh, punched their noses and they punched mine, uh, on and on. So I have lived among them and I have just come back from Lebanon last week where I took some pictures of my uh, birth home and neighborhood and so on. I was reminiscing, so it, it's still fresh in my mind the many, many years I've lived among the Muslims in Tripoli, Lebanon. So there are people who think I hate Muslims. <laughs> I, uh, uh, there's not one, uh, one little uh, cell in me that doesn't love Muslims because uh, we, lo we love them into the kingdom. But as uh, Marvin Myers wrote in a uh, in book, Christianity and Culture, a Wheaton, Wheaton professor uh, in the 70s, he said, we don't have to respect the people's religion, though we could respect them as people. And that's a big uh, problem we face, is that a lot of people are compassionate and loving towards Muslim, and they think that means tolerate their falsehood. Um, and so now we know what we're about. My topic today is, would Paul become Muslim to Muslims? Directly, I'm sure you're remembering what, uh, the passage from 1 Corinthians 9. I uh, uh, wrote this uh, over the last few months, over the last year actually, since my talk last year. I addressed uh, Acts 17 in the conference last October. This is another one, what they called the Magna Carta of contextualization, this passage. And it is uh, one of the foundations upon which insiders base their teachings and their methodology. Uh, in writing this, I wanted to check if I have misunderstood 
what, um, what people think. So I talked with people. I asked questions. And one of the questions I asked is, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 9 when he was talking about being a Jew to the Jews? Could you complete? What else did he say without looking at the text? Over 12 people in one day, in one day, said, he said, Jew to the Jews, Greek to the Greeks. I said, open your Bible. Where did he say he became a Greek to the Greeks? And they were shocked. One of them was my own wife. <laughs> shocked. Well, the shocking thing for me is when I prepared to teach this, I thought that Paul said he became Greek to the Greeks. I've been thinking this for 35 years since I first heard it from Chuck Kraft. <laughs> and I believed him. And I believed it to be there. And so some people say, what does it matter? What does it matter? It's implied anyway. He said, for those who don't have the law, I became this and that. I said, words do matter. <laughs> the Bible is about words. It's very important to know exactly what the Bible says when we are doing proper exegesis and hermeneutics. If we were just uh, writing a poem or some nice speech, you can say what you want. But if you say, God said, it better be true. In the Garden of Eden, analyze what Eve uh, said to Satan. You were mentioning that this morning. And she was adding a few words to what God said. And so it is very, very critical. And uh, also an introduction, I want to take this word of God and open it here and put it over my head. Is this on video? <laughs> I want to be under the authority of God's word rather than the word under my scrutiny and my authority. And that's a very significant difference. Because many times we come and put words in God's mouth. And we tell him what he is supposed to say. And what he means. We tell God that. And that's where we could go wrong and get ourselves in serious trouble. A lot of people say, well, saved, not saved. It's not an issue whether we are saved or not saved. It's not an issue whether anybody here is saved or not. That's something between you and God. But the issue is, what does the Word of God say? Let us really be faithful to understand God's mind and heart and not impose on Him our own philosophy or preferences for any reason. Let us examine the text. If I had a lot more time, I would read the entire discourse of Paul that encompasses three chapters. Chapter 8, 9, and 10. These three chapters make one whole. Imagine with me a, a, a puzzle. I play with my grandson, three-year-old. And we take a puzzle, look at the picture, tip it upside down, mess up the, the pieces, 
Now we have to replace re, um, every piece where it was. You can't have the one down there on the corner on the other corner, on the top. Sometimes we do that because it has two edges. He, he knows he goes to these. So there are four corners. He takes one, puts it on one of these, and then uh, try to fit everything around it. Every piece of the puzzle has to be there. However, if you look at just one piece, you cannot figure it out. You don't know what's in it. One time, I saw a piece, tried to figure it out. It looked like a tail of a horse. So I looked at the original picture, and I couldn't find the horse on the picture. It turned out to be a brush of an artist. It looked like a tail of a horse. And so we need to always relate the part to the whole, and know the whole well enough in order to understand the part, and understand the part well enough to fit it in the whole. This is very critical in hermeneutics, in studying the Bible. Someone mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses. I was a Jehovah's Witness hunter since I was 14. My grandma died as a Jehovah's Witness. My cousin I played with died as a Jehovah's Witness. And I have a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses in my family. So I was pressured to become a Jehovah's Witness. And as I examined in a Berean sense, as Brother Bill was encouraging us to be, I discovered something that has helped me present this to you today. Is that quoting scripture, verse from here and verse from there and another verse from here and there and putting them together does not make the, the truth, does not mean necessarily you have found the truth. Because many people, like Jehovah's Witnesses, piece together a new puzzle rather than the original puzzle. They make their own puzzle, their own picture, their own theology, their own doctrine, their own teaching. And we do that too. That's one of the first things I stressed because of this problem that I have lived with with the Jehovah's Witnesses for many years. Was, was one of the first things that I stressed to the, to the emerging church, emerging and not in the sense of the emergent church, in Kosovo, as uh, the Lord sent me there 16 years ago to start planting churches. Now there are thousands of Muslim converts in Kosovo who have come to know Christ. And in the very beginning, when there's only six of them, I was stressing, don't memorize verses. The navigators taught me to memorize verses. I memorized 1,000 verses in one year. And it took me a lifetime to unlearn those verses. Because many times I was misled by those verses. I'm not saying in every case. Because, for instance, I memorized, be ready to give answer to all those who ask you. That's all I memorized, part of a whole. And so I was fighting with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then when Muslims came into my life, I began to fight with them too. 
And then some years ago, somebody completed the verse for me. <laughs> Do it with gentleness and respect. Wow, it changed my whole world. It's important for us. And since then, when someone argues with me, Muslim or none, about a verse or a scripture, rather than pretend that I know the answer, I say, let's do it together. Let's go to the text and begin to understand and interact with it. I have never re regretted going back to the original. When you see the text in its context, it makes a different sense than if you see it out of its context. So with that in mind, I want to read only that specific part of the bigger puzzle so acquaint us with what Paul actually said. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning with 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew. Notice, he didn't become a Jew, but like a Jew. To win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak. To win the weak I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Pray with me for a second. Lord God, this is your word. Open my heart and my mind to you. And because you authored this, you explain it to me through your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand because I know from my years of ministry with Muslims so many people have been led astray by misinterpreting this. Help us to understand it, Lord. And where I'm wrong, correct me. Where anyone here is wrong, correct them. For your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We have already established that he doesn't say Greek to the Greeks. Did you see that there or did you hear it? I, I have three principles of hermeneutics that I want to address to you. Here, there are many, many principles. If you take a course in hermeneutics, and I recommend it for every one of you, online, under the line, over the line, whatever you can do, take a course in hermeneutics. The first principle is the text must be interpreted in its immediate context. Not only, but this is the first principle. The passage here discussed is to be interpreted in view of the three chapters not just by themselves. So go back to chapter 8. Now, of course, the full context of the whole Bible. But there is an immediate context of a discourse in which Paul is presenting a problem to the church and solutions to that problem. He's addressing the problem of how to resolve it. So let's look at that context. Can Christians eat food presented to idols? That's the question. It's not about Jews and Greeks. It's about idolatry. We heard that so beautifully this morning by Brother David.
David Talley. I have started a book on idolatry. I have reached about 300 pages and I'm still going. Idolatry is all over the Bible. You could write volumes on idolatry, the problems of idolatry. Brothers and sisters, you are looking at one of those idolaters. I am an idolater. Idolatry is anything that competes with God for my heart, for my passion. God is a jealous God. He does not allow anybody to rob him of his glory. That's what idolatry is. And many times we want to share God and we want God plus everything else or anything else. And that's the real issue. And because it's such a difficult and sensitive issue, Paul is giving three chapters to it here. He has given a lot more in other places. So he says, can we eat food presented to idols? This, in fact, is the major and overarching theme of the entire discourse. Paul starts with chapter 8 and ends with chapter 10, the same topic. The church in Corinth had many new believers from pagan backgrounds. Idol worship was part of their culture. They were brought up with it. Some who abandoned idol worship innocently continued to practice it, even though they have accepted Christ. Anything new? Go to Africa. Bible in one hand, voodoo in the other. Folk religion has entered the church or has not left the hearts of the idolaters when they entered the church. And that is the real issue. I'm going to address two parts to this issue. One is cultural, one is theological. The cultural part. Paul understood pagan culture quite well. Corinth was one of the most advanced cities in ancient Greece. The predominant culture was pagan, though there was also a small community of Jews who were exiled. Paul alluded to this cultural aspect in verse 7. He said, Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. The word accustomed here is closest to the word culture. Customs. They're accustomed. They have been enculturated all their life into idolatry. So they become Christians. They accept Christ. But they continue to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul uh, is addressing this issue. It became a problem, a divisive issue in the church. Two parts of the church. One says... Uh, were the Judaizers. They said, we need to be very accurate in our uh, exercise of the law. And the law says no idols, no meat uh, uh, sacrificed to idols, so let's not touch it. Like the Baptists say, don't touch wine. Yesterday I touched wine. <laughs> not a lot of it. Just a little bit. <laughs> 
I touched it with my lips. <laughs> and uh, listen, there's another group of the church that says, you know what? Relax. Grace-oriented Christians. They say, in Christ we're free. And what's an idol anyway? And Paul argues both points. They're right there in chapters 8, 9, 10. We are free. If the idol is nothing, so what are you so worried about? These he calls the strong Christians. The weak ones want to be confined to laws and regulations and so on because that's a safety factor for them. They, could, they feel more, um, more holy if they are following the rules, the laws. And they, they know what boundaries, where they've crossed the line and so on. But the grace people, many of us are grace people, and the church in America is basically a grace-oriented church. We can tolerate just about anything. And so Paul is saying, watch out on both sides. Watch out on both sides. So what did he say? Those who had a weak conscience were stumbled by those who were strong. The strong person, who is the grace-oriented person, because now they are new in Christ, new creations, they don't have to mess up with all the laws and, and prohibitions, which Paul himself addresses in Colossians. Don't go back to those things. So they are strong. But they were weak people. Means It means they were just freshly converted. They're still accustomed, he said, to the old. Emotionally, they have not broken away with idolatry yet. And do you know that idolatry has an emotional and spiritual aspect to it? Demonic aspect to it? When I was Greek Orthodox and I was going to these icons, evangelicals are flooding to the Greek Orthodox Church now when I'm running away from it, I felt something. I felt something. I felt something spiritually. When, the, when I kissed the feet of Mary on the icon, it's like the Holy Spirit fell on me. And Monday through Saturday, I lived an ugly, sinful life. But that experience was spiritual for me. It was emotional. It took a lot for me to walk away from the Orthodox Church. You know what it took? You may be shocked. My mother died, and I refused to go to her funeral inside. I stayed outside, and I was sobbing and crying outside. And I could not go inside. I could not get myself to walk back into that old place. Right now, I can go to an Orthodox Church and not be affected by it. But initially, my conscience was weak. I was not able to handle the idolatry that I was brought up with. And many Muslims feel the same thing about the mosque, about Ramadan, about many things. And you who are strong, hey, you, come on, come with me to the mosque. This brother was said, go become a Muslim. A brother who came to our training a couple of years ago from Nepal became a Christian without help of anybody else on radio. Then when he, the first Christian he met, he said to him, hey, you need to become a Muslim again so that you can be effective with your family. 
and he was telling them, you know, I was persecuted and I was beaten and I had to run away from my city. Oh, you were foolish to do that. Go back to your village and become a Muslim. And, and they convinced him. About three months later, he said, maybe they're right. And they're the, the real Christians. They're the mature Christians. They know better. So he went back to the mosque, grew a beard, started dressing exactly like Muslims. And for three years, he felt like he betrayed Jesus. And he did. He was betraying Jesus. And he began to see how people who knew him before said, Oh, welcome back. See, Islam is the answer. And, uh, and he realized he cannot witness anymore. And then he had to leave again. But he didn't know what to do. So he found us. He found our training, Engaging Islam, online. And I paid his way to come to Boulder. Spent six months with us to learn the Bible again, to relearn the Bible, to get himself into the new way of thinking, a new life as a new creation, which uh, he had experienced before but lost for a while. We actually have a rehabilitation program for those who are insiders, and you need that. I have met people who left the insider movement, but they're still... Uh, contaminated to some extent. You need a, to a rehabilitation because you need the scriptures to really infiltrate your mind and you need to not touch the Quran. Even though you are free to, to read it and touch it, you need to get that out of your system so that the Bible will, will completely permeate your mind and heart. This to me does not sound like contextualization. To me it sounds like decontextualization. It's the opposite. It's saying to people, don't participate in, even though it may be innocent and you have the freedom to do it, don't participate in eating meat sacrificed to idols for the sake of those who still have an emotional attachment to idols. Theological issue, which is the more important one. Even though there's a cultural element at work in this situation, the primary undergirding issue is theological. It has to do with the law of Moses. Brothers and sisters, give me a chance to explain this. It's really not about culture. If you think it's about culture, then you can say, he became Greek to the Greeks. Because you think it's just Greek. Did he ever say he became... In, in the spirit of Emir this morning. Did he become a prostitute to the prostitutes? I mean, it doesn't make sense to, to do that parallelism. The issue is, that's why he could have used Greek to the Greeks. He had just said Jews like a Jew. I became a Jew like, I became, I became to the Jews like a Jew. He could have said I became the Greek like a Greek. He, he didn't. Even though he himself is Greek and Jew at the same time. He could have said that, but he didn't. Why? Because he was addressing the issue of the law. Those who have the law and those who don't have the law. We assume that means Greeks. But he is addressing in chapter 8 an issue to do with practicing the law and regarding to meat, sacrifice to idols, or not practicing it. So it's talking about a theological issue of... The law, pertaining to the law, and how much freedom do we have 
to practice the law or should we be restrictive like the Judaizers were? Paul is basically pitting legalism against freedom in Christ. And he uses this terminology. He was defending his own right to exercise his freedom in Christ. Yet, on the other hand, he stressed that our freedom needs to be restrained by our love for those who may be hurt by our exercise of freedom. That's significant. He starts chapter 8 with that. He said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Don't let your knowledge, you strong Christian, destroy the weak believer. He appeals to love rather than knowledge, sensitivity rather than freedom. And he says, chapter 8, verse 9, Be careful that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. This appeal is consistent with the purpose of his ministry and our ministry. What did he say? We should, we should seek, we should not seek our own good, but the good of others. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. It's just the last chapter of the discourse. And he says in Philippians 2, 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That means your own convictions need to sit aside for the sake of edifying others. Muslim converts is our purpose. We want to encourage them. We want to see what's best for them. Strangely, as a national living in Tripoli, I get these Americans coming to me and telling me how to live in my own culture. Instead of asking me, what are your struggles? As a new believer, what have you encountered? And let's pray with you. Let's learn from you. Let's learn from you. Let's see how together we can resolve this problem. And this is the neo-colonialism neo we were talking about. What is Paul really concerned about in chapter 8? Is he concerned about protecting cultural practices? Certainly not. He wanted to do everything in his power to help new converts transition from thinking about idols to a new way of thinking and lifestyle. Meat was closely associated with idol worship. A Muslim goes to the mosque and prays, and we say, it doesn't matter how we pray. In Christianity, we don't have a certain form. But Muslims have a, form, a certain form, and that form has emotional, spiritual, and social significance. The emotional uh, uh, is important too, because they feel abid to God, not son, a child of God. Abid meaning slave. And as a slave, you put your head down on the floor, allowing your boss, your master, your king, to slaughter you if he wanted to with his, with his sword. That's the position of a slave thrown before the judge or before the king. That is an emotional, very much in the mindset and heart of Muslims. And we are thrusting them back in their emotional makeup. That is sin, in my opinion. We need to relieve them from that. And many, here's our brother there. 
Do you agree that you needed the freedom from that kind of emotional attachment to the uh, form of prayer? Meat was closely associated with idol worship. Paul was saying that if necessary, he would never eat meat, even though he can, and it's innocent, and it's fine. So I can go to the mosque and pray without any emotional problems, and I have. Sometimes when I visited mosques with groups, we prayed in the name of Christ, and I had no emotional attachment except sorrow for those who spend all these time there hoping that God is pleased with them and they have missed the mark. Fast forward now with me to chapter 10. We began with 8, we're going to 10, and then we're resting on 9. Paul picks up the same argument again. This time he throws out a huge explosive to the idea that these chapters are about culture. Okay, are you ready? Verse 19, chapter 10. Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans, pagans are offered to demons, not to God. So I, for me, I don't care about idols. But they themselves, it's demonic. How many of you can honestly say that you believe falsehood is from Satan, not from God. Raise your hand. Falsehood. What is falsehood? Falsehood is like a lie. Half a lie is a full lie. Half a truth is a full lie. Because the other half of the lie is truth. How about 80%? A glass, 99% pure water with 1% poison is still poison. We need to be clear about this. Why else would God be upset or angry with Amaziah and with Isaiah in the Old Testament? One little, ver one little word says, He did everything right in the eyes of God, but not wholeheartedly. Everything, but not whole. What? If you didn't have that word, Isaiah and Amaziah are great people. They did everything right in the eyes of God. But that little qualifier, not wholeheartedly, is the answer to why they ended in destruction, both of them. Amaziah, the father of Isaiah, both kings, who did everything right except... Truth has to be pure and clean and uncontaminated. And my goal in my life and yours, if it isn't, it must be, to be pure and uncontaminated. Morally, ethically, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. This is a life journey. It's a struggle. I struggle with it. I struggle to be pure. I struggle to be holy. That doesn't come naturally to me. It comes naturally to some of you. Raise your hand, those it comes naturally to you, please. And put them on the, yeah, put it on the camera there so we know who that you are. We'll check with you in a year. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, 
don't flirt, don't flirt with the demons. Are you hearing me? Am I angry? I love you. I'm telling you this out of love. Don't flirt. I'm telling it to myself. Don't flirt with the demons. You cannot play around in this area. Paul put his foot down and warned, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. Verse 21. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. You can't go to church and to the mosque. You can't read the Bible and the Quran. I know people. Now people, watch out if you're one of them. I know people who know the Quran more than the Bible. And they are serving God. They're serving Jesus. They think, if you know the Quran more than the Bible, stop reading the Quran and unlearn it. And if you are reading the Quran, if you read one chapter, read 10 chapters of the Bible to, to clean out the mess that one chapter did to you. We are dealing with a demonic, satanic, and evil-filled, falsehood-filled religion. And we are flirting with it. That is not allowed from heaven down by the divine. This is serious business, brothers and sisters. This is totally black and white. Nothing in between. You are either participating in the Lord's table or the demon's table. You cannot participate in both. Here we find the core biblical teaching on culture. That certain aspects of culture... Jeff, Morton, where are you? Thank you for your comment. I fixed it. <laughs> certain elements... That's my alarm to say this is... I need to start wrapping things. <laughs> certain elements of culture are totally demonic. Don't play around with them. Paul teaches us that our freedom needs to be exercised responsibly towards others who are not yet completely free from their past. Certainly, he is not promoting cultural sensitivity, but spiritual sensitivity. He is not promoting a contextual approach, but a decontextual approach, meaning let's clean the culture out of our system. I'm not saying by this there's nothing good about any culture. But when you are new in Christ, you're a new creation, the old is gone. You have to put, you have to die to self. Dying to self is a prerequisite to having life in Christ. Do you know that? Dying to self means dying to me, to my body, to my desires, to my wife, to my son, to my daughter, to my brother, to my sister, to my mother, to my fields, to whatever. Is that familiar? Did Jesus say anything like that? That's what it means to follow Christ. So how does this apply in Muslim ministry? If Greeks coming to Christ struggled with meat sacrificed to idols because it reminded them of the old life, what are some practices that Muslims associate with that could cause them to stumble? I'm amazed at those who are so insensitive to the fragile new life of new converts from Islam that they practice the very things that Paul warned us against. 
If Paul's message regarding eating meat is clear, why is it not clear that we must keep away from things that could cause a new convert to stumble? These include refraining from reading the Quran in the presence of Muslims. Let them burn the Quran, their own, not go burn it uh, publicly in some church. Or put it aside at least. And I know people who have. Go into the mosque using Islamic terminology and calligraphy, prostrating to pray, displaying pictures of Mecca, among other Islamic symbols in their homes. All these bring negative memories and for a new convert who is trying to break away with the past. Some missionaries feel the freedom to do these things. And I warn, please be warned. <laughs> Principle two. The text must be interpreted in its broader context by comparing it with other passages on the same issue. I have not even scratched the surface on the three chapters. Now, because he gave me a time warning, I have to jump to the next. I can feel with you yesterday. You were going doo -doo 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 fast. Let's get it done. The next, the next, the, this principle here means you relate Paul's teaching to all of Paul's teachings. Not just in Corinthians and not just in those three chapters. Look at the lifestyle of Paul. What does he normally say? How many of you know somebody? You know your wife well. I know that. If I said something about you, about your wife, that doesn't seem like her, wouldn't you know? Would you know, would you recognize, like I say, your wife the other day screamed like crazy when she saw a mouse passing by. Would you believe that? Just say it as it is. She wouldn't scream like crazy, but she certainly react. She would react, but she wouldn't scream. But if I told you she cussed, she cussed me. Okay, well you know her. We know Paul. We know what he teaches. Why are we attributing the things to him that he would not say. In fact, when he has said many things to the contrary, don't make Paul say something he would not say. That's one very simple hermeneutic principle. How do you interpret any part in context of the whole? The whole of Paul's life from Acts 9 on, all the epistles, is what you need to consider. And when you are addressing a specific issue, go to all of the other teachings on that issue and find out if it's consistent. And one principle that I will just throw in here for you as a bonus is that no doctrine cannot, can be based on one verse or a, a little portion of a few verses together. If there's no other supportive documents in the Bible about that particular topic, you cannot have a decisive theology from that verse. And there are many heresies that are based on single verses here and there, or a Greek word here and there, or some interpretations. What did Paul really say? In chapter 8, Paul established the argument that we must not exercise our freedom or right when we know it may cause a weak brother to stumble. And by that he says, am I not free? 
Consequently, even if one claims that this applies to Islamic practices, we must refrain from practicing with Muslims in their religious practices. The true meaning of the text does not permit us to exercise this freedom for the sake of our weak brothers who have converted from Islam. To illustrate this point, Paul reminds the Corinthian church that he had the right to receive financial support. He says, I'm free to receive support, but I worked to support myself. As an example, he also said, am I not free to marry like Peter does, and so on. Now let's get to the, I became like a Jew. There's a popular misconception that Paul said he became a Jew. He didn't say that. And why? Let me jump to the actual meaning of the word Jew in Pauline theology. The meaning of the word Jew is this. The Bible frequently uses terms in more than one sense. In Romans 9 says, he said, not all who are dis descended from Israel are Israel. There are two senses there. Israel, Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel, Israel. So he's referring to spiritual Israel and blood Israel. Natural Israel or physical Israel. In the same way, the word Jew is used in two senses. Paul is making the distinction between being an ethnic Jew, which he calls outward and physical, and the spiritual Jew, inward and spiritual. And that's in this text. When Paul says that to the Jews he became like a Jew, to win the Jews, he uses the word Jew three times. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. In the plural, Jews, Jews, is referring to the physical, to the ethnic Jew. Like a Jew is referring to the spiritual. It's hard for me to convince you unless you read all the other contexts that I have put here. But one such is Paul in Corinth. The whole thing started in Corinth. It's about Corinth. He wrote to Corinth and in Acts uh, 18, it tells us about a man who was a Jew, but he was versed in the scriptures, and he was a Christian. He believed uh, in Jesus. And that tips us to the fact that the word Jew also refers to the spiritual Jew, not just the physical Jew. How about to those who are who, uh, not having the law? When I have pointed this out to some people, they quickly responded. But it is implied that he became a Greek to the Greeks or because of this verse, that those who are, uh, do not have the law. The discourse in all three chapters is addressing the issue of freedom from the law. I'm feeling, I'm repeating myself. Paul's theology is clear that the law does not say, save and that we must not practice the law as a means of salvation. But he never said that the law is bad. I thought I had stopped this thing. Okay. I think I need to jump. Okay. Let's go to the third one, because that's also significant. Look how many pages I have to... You're missing out on something. To the weak, I became weak. What does that mean? It means new, new in the faith. Like a child who's weak, you become like a child. You speak his language and so on. And so he says, be sensitive to those people who are still new in their faith. Sensitive not to contextualize 
And it's just the opposite. He's saying, don't uh, indulge in their cultural practices so that they will not be drawn back or, re or come back. By the way, there have been research from Albania of insiders, second generation, don't even know anything about Jesus. Why? Because they were meshed in the mosque and they didn't raise their children in the fear of Jesus. They were themselves approached in a, by a missionary and explained these things. But because of their indulgence in the Quran and the mosque, their children didn't know. And many of them, their wives didn't know also that they're believers. And um, I wish I had more time to expound on many stories of how those who have finally given um, their families information about them having or have announced their faith, over time their families have followed Christ as well. So I have a lot of these stories. Um, by the way, uh, biblicalmissage.org is a blog I started about a year ago with some of us here. And uh, I encourage you to go visit it. And these articles here are written there in three parts. You can download them and read some more about this. Uh, in, in regard to the principle too, also, Paul preached the same message to Jews and Greeks. Let me stress one verse about that. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23. If I have to be stopped, this is a good way to stop. But I will be still. Uh, to the, he says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. If you're a contextualist, watch out. The context here says, Jews want, what do they want? What do they need? What's their felt need? Science. What do the Greeks want? Wisdom. What does Paul give them? Neither. Neither. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It actually amazes me that Paul, who is so sensitive and so loving, <laughs> he says, it stumbles you? Let it. <laughs> you think it's foolish? Let it. He's saying, I'm not going to change my message. The message is the same. It's the cross. And that caused them persecutions many times. Paul's missiology, number four. Uh, uh, I didn't give you one, two, three, four. <laughs> Paul's missiology was clearly transformational. He continued to speak about the language of the new life, new life, new creation, new, 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 opposite to the old. Put on the new, put off the old. And so transformational if biblical missiology, or if our groups here are interested in anything, really is transformation. I heard you say that. We, we talk about the gospel transforming people. And so it's just the opposite of contextualization. Although there's a lot of good things about contextualization. And I contextualize. One of the staunch contextualists told me, I've never seen anybody contextualize better than you. He thought he was going to win me to contextualization. I said, yes. What's the point? <laughs> Why am I opposed to this concept? It's because you've gone too far. And when you go too far, you've got to stop. Crossing the line. It's like someone 
flirting with his girlfriend and then going all the way. Sorry for the example. Okay. Um, the, 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 last, uh, the last principle is that we need to uh, be consistent. Every text has to be understood consistently, harmonized with the entire Bible. You referred to this harmony yesterday. To the entire Bible, to the spirit of the Bible. I have an entire lecture from the Old Testament that could take me an hour to just read selective verses of how many times God forbade His people from doing the things that the nations do. Do not do as they do. That, that phrase, repeated many times. And then other times where he is very specific. He said, do not participate in their practices and their customs. Even jewelry and things that seem to be cultural. Don't do that. And one scripture, because I don't have it in front of me, says that God was mad at his people for sacrificing to him, which is the right worship, but they did it in the wrong place. Where? Anybody remember? It's in Second Kings. The high places. They were going, they said, well, the high places, everybody goes there. That's a religious place. Let's all go there. They, they do uh, Ashura Paul's stuff, that's disgusting stuff, and we will do godly stuff. And God said, that's not sacred place. The mosque is not a sacred place, brothers and sisters. There's a sanctuary. Now we have a phys not a physical sanctuary. Jesus alluded to that in John 4. He said, it's not here or there. It's spiritual and in truth. But wherever God's people are gathered together, that is where God's sanctuary is. And the mosque is not a place, unless it's transformed, unless all of the people become true Christians and followers of Jesus Christ and are willing to convert the mosque. It's happened in Rwanda. Last year I was giving a seminar in um, uh, training, actually, more than a seminar, full week. And there were people coming from all over Africa to Kenya, and one of them was from Rwanda, and she told us about the first mosque that had become empty because the imam and all of the, not all, every single one, but all in the biblical sense, all of Samaria heard, all of them have come out of the mosque and the imam became a Christian. Now the prayer is that that mosque will actually become a church. It hasn't happened yet. But many Christians in Africa are praying for those mosques to become churches. And we need to encourage that. So, the conclusion, the main purpose of Paul's discourse was to warn us against cultural practices that have theological undertones. And we are involved in ministry to Muslims. Zwemer said, and Brother Adam, who is the Zwemer expert, I would love for you to find me that quote. I can't find it where it was. I read it. It says, Islam is the most Christian-like, 
yet the most anti-Christian of all religions. And another quote he said, and I have it written somewhere, but without knowing where he is, he says, in every area of similarity between Islam and Christianity, there's a huge discrepancy, a great discrepancy. Because counterfeit looks almost real. I had a Lebanese guy come into our training, uh, an intern, a Muslim convert. And one day, to illustrate something, he came to my office and I told him, I want to show you something. And I dug in my drawer for something and I found a, a banknote like this. I have some money here. It looks exactly like this. But it says one million dollars on it. Have you ever seen a million dollar piece? So I gave him this million dollar and he was so blown away. What? I have a million dollar? And then he said, it can't be real. I said, why? It looks real. He said, you wouldn't put a million dollars in your drawer, would you? <laughs> That's the only thing that made him, I said, it's counterfeit. But if it had 100 on it, or 50, or 20, or 10, or 1, he would have taken it and cashed it. Counterfeit looks very much like it. Once I was stopped in, Leb in Lebanese airport because I paid with $100 that looked counterfeit. That machine thought it was counterfeit. Ten soldiers came and arrested me and took me. I said, what? He said, counterfeit money. They had to take it. They had to stop the plane. They took it to downtown Central Bank, to the big machine, to prove that it wasn't counterfeit. Thankfully, I was allowed to leave. <laughs> but if it had been proven to be counterfeit, look how hard it was. Even a good machine at the airport thought it was counterfeit. And so we need to realize that what we're dealing with is black and white, light and darkness, kingdom, kingdom. Opposites. Let's be clear on this in our own hearts and let us now be sensitive to those people who need a new life. Most Muslims I'm acquainted with want to break away and some of them are being pushed by missionaries to go back. Like our brother was pushed, go back, go back, under financial pressures and educational pressures and other things. Go back. And they don't want. Why would a Muslim want to know Christ and remain a Muslim? There has no reason in the world to do that. They want something new. And let's give it to them. Thank you very much.